Ed, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. I'm really excited about our conversation today. We've been, I guess, planning this for years. We've known each other for a long time. Yep. Um, but I think actually the timing's perfect because you've been in your role now as group CTO at New Look for about 18 months. So you've got plenty to share with us, I'm sure, over how that's been. Yeah. Um, but also I think, you know, we're going to dive into what we often talk about, which is leadership, I guess, and not just technology, but actually some of the principles that you've picked up over the years during your uh, long career, what, nearly 30 years, 10 years, 20 years, 20 years. yeah, yeah, and, um, spent some time at Anders, what was Anderson Consulting, now Accenture, nearly 20 years at BP, um, where eventually I think you ended up in a kind of transformational CIO role. You have a long uh, career of technology leadership behind you um, and I think over the years you and I have spoken about leadership principles time and time again as something we come back to so I'm quite excited for us to get into the conversation and share some of your insights with um, the listeners today. First thing I want to ask you, did you ever see yourself being a group CTO of a, of a fashion retailer when you were let's say rewind 10 years when you were working at BP? Uh, no. Uh, to be honest, um, I don't think um, I had, uh, when I started work at Anderson's, uh, I left university and I started work at Anderson's, I didn't really have, uh, I'm going to be a group CTO by the time I'm X or whatever it might be. Um, I think when I joined Anderson's, it was, it was all about kind of working hard. Um, I was reflecting on some of that the other night. Um, a good friend of mine who was a mentor when I joined Anderson's retired recently and he spent 40 years there. So, uh, and you know, some memories came, a lot of memories came flooding back of, of a lot of the time then during the 90s. And I think my uh, lasting memory of the 90s was, you know, travel, different cultures, working in the energy industry, having fun, working hard, observing lots of things around me, uh, around how things got delivered, when things made, when people made mistakes, how people made mistakes. And I think my kind of uh, journey, so to speak, has always just been about, I think maybe just opportunity um, and preparedness, I guess. People have asked me before, what was my plan? And I usually say, I, didn't, I don't really have a plan or I didn't have a plan, um, but what I had was um, I knew that if I worked hard and I was knowledgeable on either leading teams or knowledgeable in certain areas, that when opportunity arose, I'd be able to step into it. So <clears throat> the answer is no. The answer is no. <laughs> the yeah. answer is no. Um, so I want to ask then, I remember you telling the story because you finished at BP. Mm -hmm. You're an avid golfer, everyone that knows you knows that you're a pretty good uh, golfer. So you went back to Scotland, played a bit of golf, had a phone call about New Look, and I imagine that was quite a interesting conversation. And so, yeah, I think, you know, what made you accept the opportunity at, at New Look? Uh, I think, you know, it comes down to it. Actually, I, was, I, I spoke to the leadership team that I was going to be part of, uh, the CEO, um, chief financial officer, chief customer officer, and chief commercial officer, and I got—I really liked them, and um, I felt that 
there was something we could do that would create a lasting legacy uh, in the retail space. So New Look was a massive brand, uh, you know, before a lot of the troubles in the retail sector and massive business. And the whole point was, was to take the brand back to where it was, um, use technology and data to help do that and help us be the, the number one omni-channel retailer uh, in the business. And in talking to the individuals that I'd be working with, I felt that we could work together as a team and, and we could deliver that. And at the end of it, there would be something that people who you know, whether they be family or friends, would be able to give you direct feedback about things that you are doing and have done. So that's why I took it. Main thing though was I really, I felt that I could work and trust the people who interviewed me and they came across really authentic and they, they all came across with the same purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and so those things were the things that made me want to join that team. Uh, versus kind of moved into retail, if that makes sense. Okay, so yeah, it was more to do with the people involved than it being a conscious, let's leave oil and gas and go and try something completely <laughs> <coughs> off the wall and different. Because I do, uh, you know, whenever we've worked with you before on, on positions for New Look, you know, when we talk about you, people always are quite surprised to hear that, well, he spent 20 years at oil, in, in the oil and gas industry and now he's doing retail. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite a shift. Um, how have you found the last year? Because you've, you've been really clear, I think, from the off. When you stepped in as Group CTO, I think you brought a lot of strategic vision and um, energy into the position and you articulated a very clear journey for New Look. How has the last 18 months been? How have you found it? Uh, I think one of the things I learned in the, the 18 years and from people above me in BP was the, the, the strength of partnerships and in going in and trying to do what we we're going to do with New Look, which complete technology refresh from the networks to the order management systems to the store systems to the payments, you know, it's, it's the, whole, the whole thing. I felt that Partnerships were going to be really important and so in order to do what, what you need to get done um, versus what I think I see sometimes in the industry around, we'll call it suppliers or customers or those kind of things. And so for me at BP, I learned the, the power of partnerships um, because when things are going well, um, you know, everything's great. When things are not going so well, your partners can help you when your partners aren't doing as well as they need to be doing, then you can help them. So it's, it's a kind of collaborative uh, relationship. And so in the last 18 months, it's been about trying to foster, I guess, the trust and collaboration inside the team uh, across the organization and also foster trust and collaboration with the partners that we need to work with in order to deliver in the way that we, we have been. The, the last 18 months as well, I've been, uh, I've felt given a huge amount of autonomy uh, and empowerment and again, working collaboratively with other kind of areas of the business, say, for example, procurement um, and working with our chief procurement officer to say, look, we could spend six months 
you know, analysing and trying to decide between two or three different partners when actually any one of them could do the job. It's just how we set it up and then make sure we get the best price and then let them know that and then work in that way, which has shortened lead times hugely. Uh, and that's allowed us to go quick. Um, and then the other thing that's happened in the last 18 months, you know, the, the first thing kind of ground up, I think, is if, if you want to be a technology-driven organisation and an organisation that uses technology to help your customers, then the first place to start is the people who work in the company need to be using good technology. And I hear so many times about, oh, my laptop's rubbish or this or that. And my view on it was, well, if we're going to, if our vision is, is for our customers to be using our technology that builds our brand, um, then the people who work at New Look need to be using the right technology. So the first thing that we did was transform the workplace, get everybody properly on properly onto Teams, not just using the video call stuff. Get people, you know, with laptops, with Office, you know, Office 365, um, operating in the cloud, you know, all of the all of the things that you know a modern technology organisation would do. Um, we kind of got that throughout the place as well. And then, you know, my learnings on <clears throat> some of the things that we've done. I've kind of gone after the whole lot and you know there's a bit of me now which is thinking like well actually in order to de-risk some of the delivery we're going to need to sequence it in the right way um, and so now it's about trying to think what's the right way to land things so that you don't break it and one of the things we've just done recently we've just moved our, our website to Azure Cloud and I have to say, even, you know, I was working and managing teams who were doing that stuff since about 2015. So I know how difficult it can be because there is no such thing as a move and there is no such thing as the cloud. Um, it's somebody else's data center. It's a technical environment build and you've got to build it from the ground up again and move it, you know, kind of migrate it across. And it went super smooth. And I think, you know, we thought about that. We thought about the sequencing, the timing and how to completely de-risk it because it's half our business. And so you don't want it down for two, three days while you're firefighting and bringing it up. It needs to go across and it needs to be up and running. You know, you bring it down at 11 o'clock at night and it needs to be up at eight o'clock in the morning. And we did that really successfully well. So the learning for that from me is around kind of sequencing things uh, going forward and maybe not trying to do everything, you know, lock, stock. And do you think that's to do with BP and how they operate in the sense that I think BP have a bit of a reputation for working at pace in the market. So, and we've talked about pace before. So is there an ideal pace? I mean, it sounds like you're reflecting on it now, but is there an ideal pace to operate at when you're trying to transform a business or is speed everything? <laughs> because Yeah, the biggest failing I see um, is, uh, and maybe people, I get kind of frustrated sometimes because I, I sometimes get, you know, I look at the world and, and think that we don't learn from the past and we don't, we don't reflect back, well, that's what happened then and this is happening again and this is what we do. And I think the biggest barrier to successful transformation is unrealistic timelines and making statements like, we're going to do this in 12 months. And everybody who has to do this kind of looks at it and goes, I've got no idea how you're going to do that. Um, yeah. Rather than 
my belief is actually come up with a realistic timeline which allows you then to create the environment, which allows then for the honest conversations about what can happen and how you do things, rather than you stick to that, this 12 months, whatever it might be, that creates stress and anxiety in the system, which then creates conflict, which then means that six months into the 12 months, you've done nothing. Because mm. everybody's trying to work out how they can do something that actually isn't realistic. So I think the main thing is about creating realistic timelines. Now, you know, you've either got shareholders, and shareholders come in, in, in the form of public company, or they come in the form of, of investors. Um, and you know, there is, there is, you know, you can't you can say, oh, it's going to take me 10 years, and <laughs> come back in five and we'll see how we're getting on. But in the same way, you can't say you're going to get it done in a year, mm. right? So it's kind of looking at how do you, how do you break it? What is it you're trying to achieve, right? Okay, we want to be the number one omnichannel retailer. Okay, what are all the things that are required in order to do that? What's the sequence of events that need to happen in order for things to be successful? How many people do you need, and how? What's the right number of people versus the, you know, divide the timeline by the scope and come up with a thousand, mm-hmm. um, and then you spend nine months trying to recruit a thousand people. So it's it, those are the things I've learned going way back and. I think the key to transformation is is creating realistic timelines, and I think the key to transformation is trusting the people who know what has to change and creating a compelling future for that change, and then empowering them and allowing them to actually make that happen. Which I think brings us onto the leadership side of things because um, we talk a lot when we uh, when we catch up around why you're actually able to influence and how you've been able to influence change. And you're someone who seemingly over the course of your career, you've stepped into these roles and you've managed to galvanize teams to get things done. And I think you've talked about it being around fostering the right talent, but also unlocking talent and Mm. getting the most out of people. Are there any particular principles that that you take on board when you lead teams or when you build teams? Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the thing of when you're in a position of, of leadership is knowing when is the right time to get involved. Um, you know, early on in my career, I would, um, if things weren't going the way they needed to go, I would do it. And, um, you know, I'd, you know, person leaves at five o'clock and I'd work till 11 o'clock at night and do it. Right, and you you can't it, you can't do that. You actually, I mean, we're talking years ago now. We're talking two thousand and four. That was the way to get things done. Do them yourself. Um, what you have to do. So it, it needs. It, what I've learned over the years is that everybody everybody is smart, and everybody is has got smarts and brains and, and knows what to do. And actually, it's about creating the environment that allows people to have the space to not what I would call, and I've done a lot of work on the, some of the great training at BP was around psychology and how people think. And if you, create the right, if you create the wrong environment, people will think with their amygdala, which is fight or flight, which doesn't allow them to use the brain. And fight or flight is, you need to get that done by tomorrow. Mm. Versus, how can I help? Or... What is it that's complicated about this? Um, 
do you need some air cover? Do you need a bit of space? Um, can I help you with it? Maybe not, maybe yes. And actually allowing people to use the front part of the brain, which is how you think and create, and you, you come up with, with the, the right ideas. So I think in terms of fostering talent and allowing teams to, to thrive, there, there, is a, there is a plus and a minus of what I'm about to say, which is quite funny. Um, I got into a very good place where teams that worked for me had worked for me for years, that it was a case of I was able to empower those teams, which meant all I had to do was provide air cover and make sure that they felt trusted and that if anything happened or went wrong, there wasn't going to be consequence or, you know, the Spanish Inquisition, but more we would learn from it and we would, and we would you know, fix forward. What that means is, is that, you know, um, when I was interviewing, when I left BP, people would say to me, oh, you know, you were in charge of all of cloud migration to AWS and Azure. I said, well, actually, I was in charge, but the guy you need to speak to is this guy. Because right? I didn't really do anything. All I did was kind of allow him to do stuff. Mm. Or, you know, there was, people would ask you about the delivery of such and such, and you go, well, actually, I'd, yeah, I was in charge of that, but, you know, what, you need to talk to this guy, because they were the people who did that. Mm. And so, you know, the, there's, and then you understand, well, actually, what was your role in all of this? <laughs> and then you kind of question yourself, and actually your role in all of this was allowing people to have the space where they were trusted and they could collaborate and they could work with each other and they could learn and they could fail and they could, you know, they, they, they always felt that you had, the, had their back. And um, mm. I actually had to ask a couple of the guys that worked for me, what was it that we did? And um, they were very good with feedback, so it was good. That, I think, that's making me laugh because um, you are, in your, in your role as leader, I think it's about creating an environment where your team can actually execute what you've hired them to do. And so one of the things about you and I think some of the other CIOs in my network is that we talk about humility a lot. Mm. And have you, do you think, I mean, I know you, you try and act and behave in a humble way throughout everything that you do. It's been a consistent message that you've translated to me, but have you always been like that? Um, Has that been something you've learned? So, you know, I've learned things from some great people over, over the years. Uh, I'll, I'll probably, if you ever watches this, you'll get embarrassed. So, Paul Burgess, um, Accenture partner, um, my first mentor. I remember him, um, you know, as a 22-year-old. Um, he said to me, um, always make sure that, you know, when you come into the office, um, you say good morning to folks, you ask people how they are, um, whether that be the people on the front reception, whether it be the PAs, um, you know, uh, the secretaries at the time. He also told me, um, the secretaries can be your best friend or they will kill you. <laughs> So it's best that you are, you know, that you remember who you are and at the end of the day you're just another human being and, and, and be kind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and say hello. And every, anytime, anything, any, he also said, anytime anybody ever does anything for you, say thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of my first piece of mentorship, I guess. Um, and I never really, I never ever forgot that. Um, 
I think, you know, if I reflect in the 90s up to about, there was a, there was a moment in time in BP where they, where they put me on this great course um, about thought as a system, and it was a lot of work that was done by David Bohm and Oppenheimer. Um, and it was run by a, a guy called Bill Isaacs and Dialogos, and it was run over a year. Up to that point, I was, you know, all about, you know, the way to get things done was just to work harder. And, um, and that was fine, to be honest, because um, I'm a big believer in, you know, work, work ethic, and you only kind of get where you get to by working hard. But I guess that, um, that course, course corrected me to start thinking more around what I would call the human system and the impact that you have on people because I think Simon Sinek says this, he's, he says that you're not in charge, there are people in your charge. Mm -hmm. And so you have to, you know, every action that you have has an impact, whether it be in the office nine to five or whether they go home at night and they're really stressed in the behaviour that they have with the family. Um, if I reflect, yesterday was quite a stressful day for me. Um, I don't think anybody would have known because I'm quite good at hiding all that. But, and it wasn't caused by anybody else, more it was caused by myself. But things that you do at work have an impact on your well-being. And so that course, course corrected me to think about thought as a system, the bigger connected system, it's not religious or, you know, people talk about inspirational. Well, inspirational means in spirit, mm. right? And you can connect to people in spirit. And one of the things that um, I saw there, which blew me away, another one of those, this is a moment, where Bohm and Oppenheimer, I think it was Oppenheimer maybe, proved that the electromagnetic waves pattern that was around the sun was the same electromagnetic wave pattern that's around the earth that's the same electromagnetic wave pattern around the human heart thus therefore proving that we're all connected and then you get a wee bit cosmic and you start looking at Taoism and all sorts of philosophy and psychology and all sorts of stuff so but all of that made me think around how everything is connected and how we are all connected and so you're, and, and so humility for me isn't about um, me being humble, it's about me, um, how I manifest myself on whoever is engaging with me and how they feel when they're engaged with me. Mm. Um, and that is around kind of listening, you know, not jumping to things, you know, allowing people space. Um, so humility, I guess what I'm trying to say is humility um, is formed of many different things. Okay, I, I like that you've just said that because I think if you reduce it down to one thing, <laughs> um, then it can be, yeah, it's a bit reductive. And the, the reason I find that question quite interesting is because as a headhunter, we're often speaking to people who want to be a CIO. Right. And my, my response to that would be, are you sure? Uh, <laughs> given given I'll, how I'll I felt last night when I went home. I'll tell them no. Um, but yeah, they, I think some of the kind of the future CIOs, right? They, I, I've witnessed that they sometimes 
some of the people in my network are quite comfortable being a really solid number two mm -hmm. and being the person who goes, yeah, not a problem. I'll go and do that. I'll get that done. You can depend on me. But actually they know that they're so fundamental in the business and they could probably go and do the CIO role, mm -hmm. but something holds them back. I don't know um, if it is humility, but I, you know, you've gone from leadership to leadership to leadership role. Yeah. How do you put yourself forward for these leadership roles yeah. while still retaining this sense of humility? I think sometimes people fit, I, I witness imposter syndrome a lot mm. um, in this industry, um, mm. particularly with, like I say, people who think they could be CIOs, but they, they are too afraid to put themselves forward. And then they're working for a CIO who seemingly won't go anywhere. Um, for, the, for the foreseeable. So, you know, and that's probably a whole other conversation in its own right, but mm. how do you think you've stepped into all these leadership roles over the years and what advice would you give someone who yeah. wants to become a CIO or wants to become a leader but needs to kind of bridge that gap? I think um, I, I come back to... Um, opportunity and, and preparedness and I guess what you're saying is sometimes that opportunity comes and somebody's a bit hesitant and says I, I, I can't do that or I don't want to do it or whatever it might be. Um, I've, I've always felt that if I was prepared and I could do a better job most of the things that I've been given over my career were things that were kind of broken. And it's kind of interesting because another guy that, that did a lot of work with, um, still do, is a guy called Jim McNeish who introduced me to Jungian archetypes and he always laughs because I keep coming back to it and I love it. But, and then the bouncing ball around Dilt's logical levels and all that kind of stuff. And the reason I'm saying that is because if you, uh, most of the things I'm mean, I'm, I'm a fixer, so I, there's a there's a problem that needs fixed, and it needs a, you to take a leadership position to fix it. First question is, is, do you think you could fix it and leave it in a better place than it was when you stepped in? Do you think that the people who are involved and maybe are in, in an environment of stress and anxiety because it's broken, you could help them, um, and you you could. You could, you could change the environment that actually takes stress away from them, takes anxiety away from them and actually helps their health. Do you think you could do that? Um, if the answer to that is you want to have a go at that, and I think it comes down, the reason I mentioned the psychology piece to it, so there's some people who actually nah, don't really want to do that, um, and that's okay. Um, but if, if you're wired in a particular way where you'd like to fix something, um, then go and have a go. Uh, there's, there's, there's some things that people, the other thing that somebody said to me once is, it's the difference between um, doing cover records and being a really good singer versus writing your own music and singing yourself. It's very easy to sing somebody else's songs, right, and it's comfortable. It takes a wee bit, you need to step into a space and there's a wee bit of worry about that, about you writing your own stuff, what if somebody didn't like it, right? Um, mm -hmm and you start losing your audience or whatever that might be. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things, I, I would say don't beat yourself up if you don't want to step into the space. 
because um, you'll have your reasons for that. But if you do think that actually you have an opportunity to help make the place better and leave it in a better state than you found it, or help people, um, then have a go. It's so, not about the title for me, is what I'm trying to say. Do you think you're writing your own album now at New Look? I, I think, well, I think, I, I think uh, since I did the Dialogos, that, you, know, you know, I remember um, this guy called Skip Griffin, who said to me, you know, you keep telling me about all, all these people and things, what's your voice? I think you've got a great voice. That's what he said, and I'm like, what does that mean? Singing. No, <laughs> in terms of what I've got to say in the world, um, in terms of my beliefs and my thinking. I was like, right, okay, this, this would be about 2006, 2007. And then something happened in 2008 where something wasn't working, opportunity came at me and I thought, and a lot of people said to me, um, that's a, what was it? That's career suicide, to take that one. And um, I was like, I, I don't see it as that, to be honest. I think there's some things that are broken, but I think I could fix it. And I guess that was me finding my voice. Um, and that was my first, I think that was my first real leadership position when I, I started, you know, operating at a, a different level. And um, from there, I mean, that's 2008, so that's what, 14 years ago. My, um, my style and, and my way of doing things has been formed from, from, from then. Um, there are people who worked with me in 2008 who, you know, will tell you what I said day five of me being in that job. And I got everybody in front of me, there was about 300 people and some folks on the phone and a whole bunch of stuff. And apparently I, I said a whole bunch of stuff and I've got no idea what I said. There was no slides, there was, there was nothing, but a couple of them went, I'll never forget that. And, um, and they worked with me for a long time and very talented people, very talented, skillful individuals. Um, and I think from then on, it was doing my thing. Do you think you've changed at all since you've been in New Look versus v BP? I mean, has, do you think New Look has, and maybe not even as just a business, but maybe the sector has had any play in how you now change or perceive leadership? Or has it been the same, the same principles that have taken you through BP right through to where you are today? Because at the end of the day, it's people, isn't it? On a humorous side of things, the things that I get invited to sometimes now <laughs> are way cooler than some of the things that I used to get invited to before in the eyes of my <laughs> daughter and my family and, you know, other half and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a lot cooler. So, you know, you go to the British Fashion Awards, Royal Albert Hall, versus you got invited to Man United Chelsea at Wembley. Right, so... Um, well, I remember you phoning me and saying that you had no idea that women had so many issues find, finding jeans uh, that fit them, Ed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it, the whole shopping thing is, is, a new, is a new thing for me. It's, <laughs> it's, I, I usually just go and buy stuff. Um, but it, it hasn't changed me as such in terms of the challenges and solving problems and some of the problems that you have in terms of you know, when, when sort of, you know, right now we're going through 
point in time when there is energy, the oil price is high, there's kind of war in Eastern Europe, there's, there's a whole bunch of inflation, there's a whole bunch of things that, and again, you can point to points in time in history where, um, you know, that's happened before. And I've been in BP when there's been, I guess, crisis before. And, um, you know, it's about having a cool head, it's about having, breaking the problem down, it's about trying to understand, you know, what are, what are the components that are making up the problem, how can you solve each bit, what's in your control, what's not in your control. Um, and then creating the environment for people to try and rally behind that. Uh, so I think that, every, you know, I guess all of my career has been around challenges and solving challenges. And I don't think uh, New Look or any business is any different. There's always challenges. Mm. Um, and sometimes you get a year where there's no challenges at all and it's really good and everyone's fantastic. Um, but most of the time you're trying to solve things. I was going to say, problems. a whole year of no challenges. <laughs> you, well, one of, the things <laughs> that, that one of the things that I used to do, one of the things I'm also um, guilty of is, is working really hard to get things working really well so that I can have a wee bit of a break at the end of it, 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 it and, and while I'm in the job. And so if you look at my career in BP, it kind of went through three, four year cycles where I'd fix something in two and a half to three years and then I'd be coasting and somebody would point out to me that you're not really working very hard. <laughs> so we're going to give you this other thing to do. And I was like, I'm always working hard, you know. But um, yeah, it's a wee bit like, there are some times when you get some quiet times, which is good. So I'm going to ask you about success and what you think. When you were starting out, let's say you were my age back in, when was that? <laughs> I don't know, what age are you? Is that a bad thing to ask? So it was, you know, right back at the start of your career, mm -hmm. someone said to you, um, you know, I know you've said this, what's the goal? But maybe they said to you, what, what would success look like to you in your career? Would you, what would you have said then? And what, what would you say now? Success to me in the 90s was not having to be sat at my desk on a Friday night at 10 o'clock doing stuff because there was mistakes made elsewhere and actually getting to a position where I could influence it so that people didn't need to sit at their desk at 10 o'clock on a Friday night. That was success. I'll never forget another moment. There's lots of moments. I'll never forget I was, I was working at a client. I'll not say the client because then Somebody might be able to join the doors and guess who it was, but I sent a client, it was eight o'clock, Friday night, I wasn't, I wasn't getting out of there. May I got out of there on the Sunday. And, um, you know, the system had been built, it was kind of hung together, it wasn't really very stable and, and all that kind of good stuff. And um, the guy who was the client um, in charge of that area, his wife came and, came and met him um, they were going out, I think, on a Friday night, as you would do. Um, it was in the middle of town, and, and she said, oh, look at that poor boy, he's still working. And he said, um, that doesn't matter, he's an android. He can work for as long as we need him to work. And I kind of thought, at that point, I just wanted to go up and just go like, you know what, forget it, and do the, 
you're all probably too young to remember the tenants lager advert where the guy just throws his case in the bin and he heads back to Scotland. <laughs> um, yep. And at that point I just thought, and then I thought, actually success for me was, was leading teams that didn't have to do that. That's what success in the 90s was. And that's still the case? I think so. I think success for me is um, not having an environment where people don't get to live life outside work because they've got unrealistic timelines. <laughs> unrealistic timelines, but I think as well, you know, we're coming out the back of the pandemic. Yep. So we're in an environment now where I think it should be a lot easier to create what you've just described. It should be. One of the, um, so actually to bring it back to now, so we are, we are facing a bit of a crisis in regards to talent and attracting talent into an organisation. Yeah. The retail sector, full stop, is having a bit of a, I guess, pause and, and contemplative moment where we need to think about what the next six months to 12, year, 12 months is going to look like. But if it comes to retaining and attracting talent into a business, there are some real headaches for companies at the moment. Mm. How, how are you tackling this? How is New Look tackling this? Well, the way I tackle it is, is to create an environment where if I hire you to be an engineer, you're an engineer. You're not an engineer that has to do PowerPoint justification meetings, stand on top of a ladder with people shaking the ladder, asking you how you're getting on, you know. So for me, it's about creating the, creating the right environment, um, top down. It's about uh, creating the, using the right technologies that allow people to see that they're building their skills. And for me, you know, as, as we re-platform things, we, you know, we're all thinking about, we are thinking as an organisation about microservices, APIs, cloud, all of the things that people would want to be building their skills on. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about making it fun and, you know, you know, helping people understand their role, I guess, in the greater purpose. Mm -hmm. If you're building, building code or you're, you're, you're in charge of a product that's, you know, on the website and, it, and it's all around, say, fit analytics and all of that kind of stuff, then that's helping us help our customers, you know, buy product that they don't have to return and therefore is more sustainable. And so, that, so it all goes towards helping, you know, I know my place in helping us become the number one omni-channel retailer. So it's about creating an environment where, you know, you've got the right technologies, you get the right environment, that you're creative, you're not under stress or anxiety, and it's about having fun um, and knowing what your role is in the bigger purpose. What do you think, I mean, if we just look forward, mm -hmm. what do you think the biggest challenges are for omnichannel retailers over the next 12 months? Um, one of the things that I keep saying to our leadership team is that coming out of the back of a CVA, we don't have that many people because when we went through the CVAs, you had to downsize, you know, you just had to survive. And I honestly think that sometimes having less people is a, is a benefit because there is re less organisational structures, there's less bureaucracy. There, I have this weird thing, again, going back to the systems thinking, where I can walk into a shop 
and my engagement with the people around. I remember going into John Lewis and I wanted to buy a mattress. And there was a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm not going to say what happened because that, that would be derogatory. Um, and I'm not going to mm. say anything like that about anybody. But I can, the response I got on a number of fronts, I can play out how that organisation structured into the answers that I got. And I can see how certain structures and organisations need their bit to be done. Mm -hmm. So we bit like when the COVID stuff used to come out and it used to tell you the rules, I could picture about 14 people around a table adding their bits. Mm -hmm. And probably what started off as two lines, you need to wear a mask on the underground, then became 14. You need to wear a mask on the underground and then you mean to not touch the hand, the rail on the staircase, mm. blah, blah, blah. Everybody got their bit in, mm. right? And I think the big challenge for uh, retailers who want to do, because I hear that there's a lot of retailers also want to do technology replatforming and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm wondering, you know, wonder, and I've seen what happens in big organisations when you try and do things. And because you've got a huge organisation, it takes, takes ages to move it. And sometimes when you end up moving it, it moves not in the way you wanted it to, but it moves based on how the organisation structured and it wanted it to move. So I think that the challenge for a lot of retailers is to think how you streamline the, um, the, the kind of executable path to the vision that you're trying to create. And what I mean by that is allowing the people who know how to get you there which is probably less people than you have. And what happens in big organisations, I think sometimes is, well, rather than getting rid of things, mm. they just sort of keep going. And because getting rid is a wee bit too hard. And so I think, you know, I, I quite enjoy the fact I've, I've not got a very big team. I think that's a good thing. If I need horsepower, okay, you know, maybe it costs us more because we have to complement the, you know, we're building our own internal team, but we've got the horsepower. When we've built out what we need to do, we'll take the horsepower away and we'll be left with our own internal team. Um, but I think, you know, retailers have maybe got a challenge around how they've grown really big. Um, organisationally, how they've probably grown really big inside their IT organisations. I think in terms of what they need to, where they need to get to in becoming an omnichannel retailer, maybe they don't need that organisation. And maybe they're trying to figure out how do I accommodate the organisation without any breaking any eggs? Uh, because actually I maybe only need that person, that person, that person, or that organ, that mm. organ, that organ, join them together. I'm a big believer in multidiscipline squads of um, combining people in the business and you know, the business, I'm going to call it the business because people then say it's the digital team or it's the IT team or it's the custom, you know, forget that. It's about getting all the right people that you need in the right squad to drive that's the executable path, right? To the vision that you're trying to create versus creating the handoffs that the digital team passes to the technology team and then it doesn't work and then there's the blame cycle and then all of those extra cholesterol that gets created because the team isn't working as a multidiscipline squad. So I've seen the benefit of that over these. We, we are set up like that in, around a lot of our products right now. And we still have projects because there's some things that do need projects. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's, I think the organisational structures and the, the HR lines and the handoffs are probably what gets in the way of retailers and any organisation achieving its goals. Yeah, I think you've mentioned a few names, but there are a few retailers in the UK who kind of follow that model that you've just described, where they probably have 
too much in the business. Are there any retailers that you think are doing doing it well at the moment? I think there's lots that are doing bits well. I, I look at, as I say, I've, I've now uh, I now go into shops, whereas I probably didn't before. Um, I now go shopping or I'll go online and I'll look at certain things. I think um, I look at some of our rivals like Zara and H&M and I even go into some of the higher end uh, brands like Burberry and Louis Vuitton and, and all of that kind of stuff and I, and I look at pockets of absolute brilliance um, and then I can see I can see something that, I'll give an example, I went into uh, a retailer, pocket of absolute brilliance, self-checkout with RFID. Organisational cholesterol meant that the self-checkout was at the place right next to the actual checkout and you had to queue for the self-checkout. <laughs> Which defeats the whole which point. Which defeats the point. So point of brilliance, self-checkout, RFID, drop it into the basket, pay for it, allows you to de-tag it, walk out of the shop. Um, that possibly was a meeting whereby somebody said, the shrink will be huge. People will just steal things. Mm. So what we'll do is we'll put it next to the checkout where, where it's visible and we'll have somebody there who's watching people check out. Because um, I remember, I remember uh, I was with my daughter at the time, and green seems to be the end colour. It has been since Christmas, probably. <laughs> and um, we went to the self-checkout, and I just walked to it, and somebody came right up to me and went, oh, no, no, you need to get in the queue. Just point that. I might as well just use the proper checkout. Yeah, well, you know, that is what it is. Okay, fair enough. So I see pockets of brilliance, and then I, I you know, or other pockets of brilliance, there's store Wi-Fi. You get connected to the store Wi-Fi. Um, pockets of brilliance, store Wi-Fi. Pockets of not so brilliance, you know, everything in my inside leg measurement to get onto it, right? Which is, again, a meeting where everybody's going, but we need this data, that data, this data, that data. And if we're going to give them Wi-Fi, we should get this and that. And you're like, right, okay, where's the customer and all this? And then pockets of brilliance, so you get onto the Wi-Fi, you walk to the back of the shop, Wi-Fi disappears because they never put enough access points in. So I, I, I think there are lots of folks that I learn from on a, on a, on a daily, weekly basis. Um, I, I went out with the CIO uh, from Burberry actually the other week and it was a cathartic conversation because it's the same challenges. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Burberry actually are a, are a business that I mean, Mark's done amazing things. Absolutely, yeah. I think a lot of retailers actually look up to Burberry Ab and what he's created Absolutely there. brilliant, yeah. And he's also retained talent yeah. without really... I mean, I, yeah, I need to catch up with him because he's, he's doing something very exciting over there. Yeah, no, he's doing a lot of great things and that's why I say it was kind of cathartic around some of the challenges and being able to, to share some of those challenges and listen to his experience um, and learn from that. Mm. Um, right, and then he was picking my brains on some of the things I'd done in my career around SAP and some of those kind of things. And what we're both probably going to do that we'll keep quiet for now. But I think that um, there's an opportunity for 
I'll just say, there's an opportunity for CIOs to possibly come together more in, I'll call it, response or facing off to some of these big software vendors and actually turning it a bit on its head. Because um, I think it's, you know, some of these organisations, I was very fortunate, very blessed. I work for BP and, you know, it's a big organisation. So if there's ever an issue, I'm phoning somebody on the board of mm. SAP or whoever. But I think there's a number of organisations that don't have that kind of level of access to get things fixed or solved or problems addressed. And I think there's an opportunity for, you know, numbers of CIOs to get together and go and take it on. So just to kind of round, round off what's been a very interesting discussion, I want to ask you about your... I guess, inspirations in life, if you've got some personal or professional heroes that you've looked up to over the years? Um, so I think the, there's a lot of people I, I admire. Um, I, always, I always think, you know, maybe it's just my background, but the, the guy in, um, at the end of Dunkirk that Tom Hardy plays is based on a real character, a guy called Alan Deere, who was a hero. And that act that he does at the end where he checks the fuel gauge and he's not getting any fuel to get back and he sees a Stuka dive bomber going, off, going after a boat and he basically, he's only, he's running on vapour at this point and he takes, the, he takes the Stuka dive bomber out and then he lands on the beach and he sets the plane on fire and then he's captured. That's, that's heroism in my book. Um, and, you know, I would, I've never met that guy but he did something similar um, in real life, and it was actually in, in Belgium. But, you know, when you ask people who do things like that, why did they do it? Then the answer is because they believe that somebody would have done it for them. And, um, and so, if you take that to the, the world of the business and people that I admire, um, that I've looked at and worked with, there's a lot of people in BP that I admired over the years. Um, Brian Govari would be one of them in terms of what we talked about earlier, um, thinking about a crisis and managing through a situation where you've kind of got the whole Macondo thing happening on one side and you've got the, the whole BPTNK separation happening on the other, so you've got the Americans there, you've got the Russians there, and how, how you kind of managed all through that was, you know, I guess something that in the conversation yesterday I used as a bit of inspiration. Um, in the conversation with, with, with my leadership team. Um, Rob Lawson, who I worked with at BP, is also someone I admire in terms of a cool head. Again, thinking through how empowerment, creating the right environment, all those kind of things. Um, and so I, I look for people who, as I say, you, know, you can see people who create the right environment for people to be successful. Um, nobody's perfect. Everybody's, you're only human at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, everybody's got their learning. You can always be learning, but those would be people that in a professional sense, I reflect back on, on my career. Um, I think from a personal perspective, I'd love to have dinner with Marcus Aurelius, just because I've read all his stuff and, and I read every day. That, you know, that stoic mentality and also what was going on there and the level of change he brought about to the whole of Western Europe. Okay, it was back in, back in the day, but change is change. Um, 
and I'd and and also I admire people who, you know, I, I always tell people that if you want to be the best at, at what you are, whether you be a musician, whether you be a sports person, whether you be an actor or an actress or whatever it might be, then every single person who's who you know you look at and they're at the top of their game and they're receiving awards or whatever that is that they've done have have put the effort in and have worked and worked and worked and become an expert in that to the point whereby nobody else can do what they do. Um, and that's not because, and they've got that because they've worked really, really hard. And, and that for me are people who I admire um, the most when I, when I see um, folks and I always say to folks, you know, that person's there, they've probably been rejected five or six times they probably worked, you know, nights, weekends, you know, constantly at it. Mm. You know, it's not come about just because they were given it. And that's people that I admire, and that's in all walks of life. Amazing. Um, last question. If you weren't doing this, Ed, what would you be doing? Um, Oh, I, I, have a, I have an inkling. Yeah, I, so I, I was very fortunate to have a, a year's, best part of a year's garden leave. And, you know, anybody that ever gets offered garden leave, seize it. Don't go straight to work. Take the time. Um, best year of, you know, climbing hills, getting out on my bike, meeting friends, going on holiday. Uh, as far as you could go during that time, because it was in the pandemic, yeah. um, and playing golf. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I did with a good friend of mine, Gordon Sherry, was um, at the time he's like, look, I think I was playing off six at the time, which I was, was okay. And he's like, look, you've got some time in your hands, we could do some work together, and let's set a, let's set a goal of being off scratch and work out how we do that. And again, that's, you know, in order to do that, there's an awful lot of learning, there's an awful lot of listening, there's an awful lot of application, there's a whole bunch of things to that. So I'd probably be doing something where I'm learning, but I'd be learning about other things. Golf related? Golf, could be golf, <laughs> could be cycling. I'm a wee bit OCD on things sometimes where, I don't know what the, what the three-letter acronym would be, but once I want to go after kind of doing something and being really good at it, I'll kind of work really hard at being really good at it um, and kind of getting all the gear and no idea and you know just keep working at it and work out how you get better and what supplements you need to take or you know whatever it might be um, I'd be trying to learn I'd, I'd pick something and I'd, I'd learn how to be the best at it. Amazing well thank you for coming in. Thanks and, very much it's been enjoyable. Thank spending you. the time taking us through very excited to see what you continue to achieve with New Look in your role. Thank you. Um, and yeah, hopefully we can do this again. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you.